I wonder how you feel about unfinished business. At one level, it might just be that thing in your in-tray or in our house on the kitchen table, which we have procrastinated about dealing with or sorting out for quite a while, and it just shouts at us every time uh, you you see it. Uh, Something that's not urgent, but there won't really be closure until it's done and dusted. Unfinished business that just prevents us from having that sense of, of, of completeness and closure. On a, on a more serious level, maybe it's that relationship that has gone a bit sour. It's that little twist in the gut when a memory comes out of nowhere and you remember that perhaps you haven't exhausted all that you could have done to make things right. Genesis 32 is a story about Jacob beginning to deal with unfinished business. It's a story in in two main parts. Uh, First of all, there's Jacob's preparation to deal with it, and then there's his supernatural encounter at the river Jabbok. It's a preparatory chapter, uh, not just for Jacob's encounter with Esau, which you will look at next week, and that interesting reconciliation. But it's a preparatory chapter for the rest of Jacob's life and how he deals with God. But introducing both of those stories In the first couple of verses of chapter 32, there is a little incident that we could very easily pass over and ignore. It's a very enigmatic encounter with the divine. There's this incident where where Jacob sees somehow the angels of God. Now, the way that this is worded is very, very ambiguous. It's obviously some sort of vision, but it's not like his vision at Bethel where God speaks very clearly to him and reveals himself to him. And it's certainly not like the encounter at the end of the chapter where he wrestles with with this God-man. It's just passed over that as Jacob is leaving behind Padan Aram and just having sorted out another messy relationship with with Laban, he sees literally the armies of God. So it's not just a couple of angels, you know, floating in the sky. He, He sees encamped, which is why he calls it two camps. He sees encamped about him. With the eye of faith, he sees the armies of God. And the words that are used are normally used of sometimes a hostile encounter or certainly a foreboding or sinister encounter. So here there's no clear promise, there's no words from God, there's an uncertainty, there's just the brooding presence of these angelic armies. Now in the big picture we know that God is going to be with Jacob. But he doesn't know that fully just yet. It's not stated here. It's a little warning to Jacob to tread carefully, to remain aware of the divine, 
And to be aware of the divine means to be as aware that that can be as much of a threat as a comfort, depending on our standing with God. To one with as checkered a background as Jacob had, this could be an unsettling experience. He needs to tread carefully. He needs to, to walk circumspectly. There's that wonderful verse we're quite familiar with in Micah. He has shown you what is good, uh, to, to, to love mercy, to act justly, and to walk. Usually walk humbly, but it's really to walk wisely, walk circumspectly, walk appropriately with your God. And that's the same sense here that Jacob is being reminded to go into this new territory, treading lightly, and a reminder that he's on holy ground. So this then, I think, paves the way for the cautiousness with which he plans his reconciliation with Esau. And it reminds us of an important truth that I really want to, to, to bring out through what I'm saying this evening, and that is that our messy human encounters need to be seen in the context of our divine encounter. Jacob's messy encounter with Laban, which he patches up then, his forthcoming messy encounter with Esau, that relationship, those messy relationships need to be seen as they are in this story, surrounded before and after with a divine encounter. Here, Jacob, as he passes the armies of God that are a, a, a timely reminder to him of who's really in charge, Jacob prepares for Esau. And in this chapter, we see him, no more Mr. Cocky, no more in control, but unsure of the future, gone is the old confidence and instead, this is replaced with humility and posture, and as we'll see, replaced with a sensitivity and language that, that just wasn't part of him in his youth. This was an important time for Jacob. He has lived his life characterized by, he's lived a life characterized by awkward relationships. Now, many of them of his own making, but whether it was uh, the deceptive relationship he had with his father or the rather codependent and messed relationship he had with his mother or the very bad relationship he had with Esau followed by a deceptive relationship with Laban, it doesn't matter. Many of them were of his own making, but the interesting thing is that we begin to find Jacob able to take what he learns from his encounters with God back into those relationships. That, you know, he had the dream at Bethel, he had the promises. They're starting to make a difference in his life. They're starting to permeate how he lives and acts. They're not just spiritual experiences. He is aware, as we will see, that these are experiences that he had no right to expect. This was all of grace. But he begins to apply what he has learned from the experiences with God back into these relationships that we, I guess, on a human level would have thought were irreparable. 
I mean, if we didn't know the whole story, we come to Genesis 32, we've read the previous chapters, we think that as far as any meaningful relationship that Jacob could have with his brother, I mean, it's gone, it's history, it's over. That relationship's dead. But when we see how he prepares to once again meet Esau, uh, we see three stages. We see, first of all, that he sends word by messenger, by word of mouth, to, to tell Esau that he's coming. Then there's the preparation and later the sending of these gifts. And sandwiched in the middle of that uh, preparing and sending of the gifts, there is a prayer. Now, when he sent word of mouth by the, the messengers, now, when we're reading this, it was quite obvious, I think, to us as a, a dispassioned uh, reader that it was successful. I mean, the messengers came back unharmed. But the narrator allows the tension to heighten a little bit. And Jacob is not certain. He doesn't know that. He wonders if this is a trick. And therefore, the, the fact that his brother is coming with so many men strikes fear into him. Now, as the story unfolds, we believe that there's a wonderful irony here because what's essentially happening, as we will see, is that Esau is coming to give him like a kingly escort uh, into the territory, the way you would treat a dignitary. But we don't know that at this stage. And at this stage, it's, it's on tenterhooks. Is it going to be a war? You see, I think, I think it's a feature of someone with a bad conscience that you imagine the worst of everyone else. If you have a bad conscience, you begin to imagine that other people are like you. They're out to fiddle you. They're out to harm you in some way. And, and Jacob has lived life like that, so he can only fear the worst. I mean, he doesn't trust himself, so he's not going to trust Esau. His conscience isn't yet clear. And as we will see, the key to a clear conscience is a humble acknowledgement of our own feelings and a preparedness to have faith and trust in the grace of God, which then helps us to begin to see the good in others. So Jacob prepares his gifts. He prepares to make some restitution for what he has stolen. Um, and when you see the list of things that he gets, I mean, this isn't just some, you know, hastily bought box of chocolates at the petrol station on the way to Esau. You know, this, this is really a visit to the bank manager to sort out the, the wealth of the family. This is major stuff. He divides up his wealth, all that God has given him, prepared to give as much of it away as possible because he's beginning to be changed. He's beginning to see what matters. And God matters, and relationships matter, and truth matters, and honesty matters, and generosity matters. And so the stuff that he fought so hard to keep, the blessings, the things that he stole from Esau, and grasping for wealth and for power, he's now prepared to give it all away. Back to the guy he stole it from, because that's not important anymore. But before he, he does all of that, he prays. 
The prayer that he, he utters is one of the longest in Genesis, interestingly enough. And it's a prayer which is based on God's compassion. But even in how he, he, he words it, there, there, there's something interesting. He's a very frightened man, and that comes out in the heart of the prayer. Save me, I pray, for I am afraid. And yet, I think the old Jacob would have taken God's promises, which he'd heard a long time ago in the blessing of his father. He would have taken those promises. He would have been faced with, with, an op- with a problem, a, a coming enemy, and he would have said, Right, God, now, make good your promises here because, you know, you've told me that things are going to be all right for me. But before he gets there on this occasion, he confesses. He begins, I am unworthy of all the kindness and faithfulness you have shown your servant. And then this wonderful recognition. You know the the old thing in Job about, you know, naked we come into the world and naked we go out, and how that's a, a wonderful orientation to have against materialism and everything else. Well, there's something here too about Jacob that says, you know, I recognize that everything that I have is a gift. I had only my staff when I crossed this Jordan, but now I've become two groups. This recognition of God's goodness and an honest acknowledgement of his own sin and his current fear. Sometimes, you know, I think that our vocabulary of our prayers can be so foreign just to the everyday life that we live. And we could do good to, to, to look at Jacob here and see that there, there is simply a recognition of who God is, of his own unworthiness, of what he owes to him. And then just an honest confession of his fear, and only then a restatement of God's promises. And so, God, fulfill your promises. As we look at, at Jacob in, in, our, in his human relationships, it's interesting because when we read the Old Testament, I mean, one of, the, one of the problems that we can fall into at times is that we just see it as stories. And we say, right, well, if we are like David in this, or if we're like Samson in that, or if we're like Jacob in this, then we'll do good or we'll do bad. Instead of just seeing them as moralistic tales, we need to see them in terms of God's interaction with humanity and what we learn from that. So yes, there are things to learn from Jacob's personality and his character and how he deals, but all in the context of what God is doing in his life. And that is why when we see the whole issue of his human relationship with Esau, and I won't say, obviously, you want to steal Christoph's thunder for next week, but even when it gets down to that reconciliation and all of that, we need to see it in the light of what God and how, what God's doing and how he's working in the life of Jacob. Because here we have the beginnings of a changed man. We've seen him moving from arrogance to humility. We will see him moving from hostility to reconciliation. But above all, in this chapter, I think, we begin to see Jacob starting to do it God's way. Well, how do we know that? Well, we know it with the, genera- with the, with the privilege of hindsight. Because what is God's way? How is, what's God's way of reconciliation? Well, we look at the cross. God took the initiative. 
God took on the form of a servant, being made in human likeness. Philippians 2. Made himself nothing in order to bless his people. And what do we find Jacob doing? We find Jacob taking the initiative, being prepared to bless his enemy, taking on the form of a servant. Just look at the number of times the word servant is used. The language of Jacob to Esau is the language of a servant to a lord. Jacob begins to start doing it God's way. And what we see is that the things that make human reconciliation possible are things like this desire for generosity and restoration. Jacob could have engaged in a face-saving exercise. He could have engaged in damage limitation. He could have made excuses. He could have talked about extenuating circumstances. But he didn't do any of that. He just wanted to be restored in relationship with his brother. And he was prepared to be generous. And that humble prayer, human reconciliation is made possible because of humble prayer. Jacob wanted the blessing. He doesn't <coughs> disown God's blessing. <coughs> but up until now, he has wanted it on his terms and by his efforts. And what we see in chapter 32 is, is Jacob's ambition being somewhat tempered as he prays. We cannot spend time in the presence of God in prayer and not be unchanged. We cannot utter prayers like Jacob's and not have our attitudes turned around and, 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 and still hang on to our, our old selves. So Jacob is about to experience what it means to be humbled. And his ambition here is harnessed, where before he was previously prayerless, now it's harnessed into humble prayer. But above all, human reconciliation isn't just facilitated by a desire to be generous and restore and all of, be restored. Human reconciliation is facilitated by transformative encounters with God. Which, of course, is why reconciliation is different from simply peacemaking. Why it's more than an absence of conflict. Because Jacob and Esau hadn't been in contact. They hadn't been in, in overt conflict for years and years. So there's an uneasy truce, if you like. But reconciliation is more than that. And that is facilitated when the parties have experienced a transformative encounter with God. And that's what this strange story at the end of chapter 32 is about. On the face of it, it's quite strange. Jacob is left alone. We're not quite sure why he's alone when he has sent his family across and he seems to be back and forward across the brook. Man comes and wrestles with him. It seems to be developing into a score draw, a bit of a stalemate. When the man asks to go and Jacob demands a blessing, the man asks for his name and then changes it and something in the whole episode just rings true to Jacob's previous experience with God that he realizes that what he's been doing has indeed been wrestling with God.
But what's going on underneath this? Well, for a start, Jacob is alone. I mean, it's interesting. Some commentators have spilled a lot of ink trying to work out what side of the river Jacob is on. Frankly, it doesn't matter what side of the river Jacob's on. But there is this unusual nature that he seems to be alone, having sent his family across. Now, personally, I don't find that desperately strange. I don't know about you, but I'm the sort of guy who, if there's something really big coming up, a major event that I'm particularly nervous about, I just want to be alone for a while. Or maybe even it's at a momentous time of transition. You know, maybe if you move house, maybe a house that you've grown up in and you've raised your family in and you're now downsizing or going somewhere else and the van has come and you've packed it full of all your furniture and all the rooms are empty and you're going, I'm sure some of you have just said to the guys, hold on a minute, I just want to go back in one last time. Go back in and just spend time in the empty house. There's times in our life when we just need to be alone with our thoughts. And I am sure Jacob wanted that on this night. He, he couldn't sleep anyway. He was, he was confused. He was fearful. This was his last chance to be on his own before he met his brother. We would say in this part of the world, he just wanted to get his head charged. And into that troubled man's mind, God enters in a very real and tangible and physical way. Not with words of comfort or counsel, but ready for a fight. In the fight, God allows Jacob to match him. I feel that his words here are, 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 a, are a tease where he says, let me go for dawn's coming. I, I sort of read into that God asking Jacob, let me know what you want. Do you want me to go? I mean, Jesus was not averse to doing this. In Luke 24, when uh, he was with the disciples on the road to Emmaus, and he made as if to go on, and they invited him in or when he was with his disciples in the lake, and he made to pass them by. There was never any doubt that he was going to go into the house. There was never any doubt that he was going to engage with the disciples. But in both of those instances, he wanted the initiative to come from them. He wanted the desire for contact and for further fellowship to arise from within them. And here I believe it is the same with God. He wanted Jacob to say what Jacob really wanted. It's interesting, too, because I believe that, as I'll say in a, in a moment, as we are wrestling with God, whatever that means, when we are wrestling with God, He doesn't dominate us. He doesn't dominate us. He allows the fight to continue, the struggle to ensue. And yet, He shows us very quickly who is in charge with one touch he incapacitated Jacob. With one touch, he took away all Jacob's self-strength. Folks, we need to surround all of our difficult decisions, 
all of our difficult human encounters with divine encounters. We need to remain in awe of this God as Jacob was as he passed those heavenly armies at the start of the chapter while still in faith recognizing that they're ultimately there for our good. That that wrestling God with whom we can be struggling at times is there for our good. I like to think of this, of the image, that image that you have of God and Jacob indistinguishably bound up in a flurry of arms and legs grappling on the ground by the riverside is actually an image of God and his child inextricably bound together with unbreakable ties of grace and love. We read, don't we, that Nothing can separate us from the love of God, neither height nor depth, angels nor demons. Not even death itself can separate us from that love. Wrestling with God is part of the life-changing journey that we embark on when we walk by faith. There is so much nonsense talked in some Christian circles of the triumphalism that we are to exhibit because we are the new Israel. And that sort of triumphalism makes us guilty of the very sins that the old Israel were guilty of. They took their chosenness and their electionness as a badge of honor and superiority. No, folks, if we are the new Israel, which I believe we are, that means we wrestle with God. That means we struggle with God. At the start of that journey of faith, we learn that unlike Jacob trying to pacify Esau with gifts, we cannot pacify God with gifts. We need to come empty-handed. And Isaac Watts' old hymn, not all the blood of beasts on Jewish altars slain could give the guilty conscience peace or wash away the stain. But Christ the heavenly Lamb takes all our sin away a sacrifice of nobler name and richer blood than they. Jacob's guilty conscience could not be salved by, by, by pacifying God. He needed to wrestle with him until God took away his self-strength and Jacob clung on to him, empty-handed for his blessing. Into that fight, Jacob came with the self-sufficiency and human strength that God needed to cure him of. And when we wrestle with God, we make some significant moves. Well, God makes them for us, I suppose. First of all, we move from manipulation to brokenness. Jacob was the arch manipulator. He thought he could work God's purposes and get God's blessing in his way. He finishes this encounter broken. When we wrestle with God, we may be wrestling, still hanging on to wanting control and and strength ourselves. But until we are broken, we will not be of use to God. We also move in in, in that struggle. We move from struggle 
to embrace. There is a key moment in the fight where it moves from a struggle and a wrestling match to Jacob holding on to his opponent and saying, I won't go until you bless me. It was only as he stopped struggling and fighting and wrestling against God and clung on to him, accepting the divine embrace, that he was blessed. And we find the same. Only when we stop struggling against God and humbly accept the comforting and loving embrace of God, only then do we experience something of the blessings he has for us. It's interesting in that encounter where he says to Jacob, what is your name? Of course he knew what his name was, but he wanted Jacob one last time to say his old name as a confession of his past. Jacob, cheat, manipulator, the crafty one. And he says, you're now Israel. When we wrestle with God, when we hold on to him then for, for blessing and accept that embrace, he gives us a new name, the name of his child. I guess in New Testament terms, this is Jacob's conversion. And the interesting thing is, how does he come out of it? Well, the, the final move that we make in this fight, from manipulation to brokenness, from struggle to embrace, is the move, what I call, from swagger to limp. Jacob had swaggered his way through life. All was able to make a quick one. All was able to outwit people. Wealthy, blessed, so he thought. He comes out of this encounter and into the rest of his life with a limp. When we engage in wrestling with God, we are never unchanged. We come out of the situation different. We're forever reminded of that life-changing encounter. We're never the same again. Something of the old is gone. The limp, I think, is the most appropriate posture of the Christian. It is a, a constant reminder. It's more so than maybe on our knees, which is a static image. It's an image of humility. It's a good image. But even more so is the limp because we're moving forward but it has been, as it was for Jacob, a crippling victory. God is going to show his strength through our weakness. Folks, I don't know what it means for you this evening to be wrestling with God. For some, it may be like Jacob, that life-changing first encounter, our conversion, when we, when we just hold on to him for the first time. And let go of all of our old life. For many of us on the Christian walk, it, it can be a regular occurrence as God needs to divest us of more and more of ourselves and our agendas. And as we struggle, we find ourselves holding on to Him in embrace and asking for blessings, saying, take away my strength. Take away all that I have brought of myself. And in the midst of that, 
in the midst of the trial or the perplexity in which God seems to be fighting against us, the amazing truth is that as we emerge from that, I want to encourage you this evening if you are on the middle of that, that you will emerge. As we emerge from that place, what we actually understand, a wonderful paradox is that the God who we were fighting against and who seemed to be fighting against us was actually at the one and the same time fighting for us. This chapter is full of ambiguities. It's full of mysteries. It's set at night in darkness. But every encounter with God will be cloaked in mystery to an extent. What we need to understand is that as we continue that struggle and cry out for his blessing, he does reveal himself to us. What did Jacob say? Here I have seen the face of God, and I have lived. What was that song that we sang earlier about the wilderness, the barren place? And how it is renewed in the strength of the embrace of God. It is significant, I think, that each of the Gospels, the Synoptic Gospel, ends with a sense of God being with his people. The I am with you of the Great Commission, also found in various forms in Luke and in Mark. Whereas the disciples emerge into the, 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 the New Testament era, the early church, the church era, they are confident that the armies of God are with them. The spiritual battles against all the powers of darkness have been won. And they simply need to limp forward as many of them did, inadequates, martyrs, weak, despised, powerless, limp forward in the knowledge that the God who is with them is a God in whose strength they rely, not on their own, not on their own. Where would the church be if they had relied on themselves? Where would this church be? if we relied only on ourselves. Folks, let us go forward from this evening, learning from Jacob, making those transitions, even in our brokenness, seeing our brokenness, seeing our fallen, seeing, seeing our inadequacies as necessary requirements, prerequisites, essential criteria for being disciples of Christ. And let us limp with him at our side. At times, we struggle with him. We don't understand. We cry out. We fight. We resist. And yet, through it all, we realize that at the same time, 
That's what, he's, that's what he has needed from us, to purge us of ourselves, to purge us of the past. And at the same time, he has been fighting for us. May that be our experience. In a moment, we're going to close our worship with a, a hymn that, that Christoph uh, requested that uh, he had heard us do uh, somewhere else a, a while ago based on the story of Jacob. Uh, it is set to a, a familiar tune. Uh, and so after I pray, uh, Gwen will lead uh, in the singing of it. Uh, and the first verse, we will just play and sing ourselves. You can remain seated. And then we'll go back and we'll start from the first verse again as we rise uh, and sing, uh, O Lord of all the nations. But first of all, uh, let us pray. Lord, you know where we are in this narrative, in this story, uh, where we are as, as, as people who are like Jacob in so many ways. We pray for those of us who are in the midst of a struggle, fighting you, resisting, and crying out for understanding. Those of us who are facing difficult relationships, difficult encounters, difficult decisions ahead. Lord, bring us through these moments, perhaps weaker in ourselves, but ultimately stronger in you. For we ask it in Jesus' name and for his sake. Amen. The first verse of O Lord of All the Nations, and then we'll go back and stand and do it from the beginning.